WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. This is Butch Slaughter, and you're listening to The Echoes of Indiana Avenue. Welcome to my neighborhood, The Avenue. I grew up here, and each week I'll be sharing the sounds and stories of the people that made The Avenue great. Welcome back to the Avenue. Each week on Echoes of Indiana Avenue, we bring you the sounds and stories of legendary musicians connected to the Avenue scene. During the era of segregation, Indiana Avenue was the commercial and cultural hub for black residents in Indianapolis. The neighborhood was home to legendary venues from the Madame Walker Theater to the Sunset Terrace, and many generations of historic musicians emerged from the Avenue scene. Sadly, the Avenue entered a period of decline in the late 20th century. Years of redlining, along with the development of IUPUI and the interstate highway system, gutted the area. But the influence of the neighborhood's residents lives on, from writers like the poet Maury Evans, to athletes, including the basketball star Oscar Robertson. Echoes of Indiana Avenue features interviews with living legends from the avenue and looks back at the neighborhood's cultural history. On this week's show, we'll revisit our favorite avenue music and interviews from 2023, including George Chandler, Claudia Polly and more. 2023 was a significant year for the Avenue's musical legacy. March 6 marked the 100th anniversary of the birth of Wes Montgomery. Wes cultivated his unique guitar style on the Avenue, performing in clubs like the Missile Room and George's Bar. Echoes of Indiana Avenue celebrated Wes Montgomery's birthday with an entire month of programs dedicated to his music. West Montgomery's 100th birthday also saw the release of the documentary Westbound and Maximum Swing, the unissued half-note recordings, a three-album set featuring unreleased live recordings of Wes. We'll start this week's show with a track from that record, Recorded in 1965, this is Wes Montgomery and the Winton Kelly Trio with four on six. Thank you. 
that was West Montgomery with four on six off the album Maximum Swing, the unissued half-note recordings. Up next, we'll listen back to an excerpt of our interview with vocalist George Chandler. His career started at the Mount Vernon Baptist Church located in the Hallville neighborhood of Indianapolis. George's time in Indianapolis was cut short in the mid-1960s. He was drafted into the military. George was stationed in Italy, where he formed the Four Kents, a soul music act that sang in English and Italian. In the 1970s, George left Italy for England, where he performed with the greatest stars in pop music, including Tina Turner, Paul McCartney, and Elton John. During the 1980s, George co-founded London Beat and co-wrote the group's 1990 hit, I've Been Thinking About You. George Chandler spoke with WFYI's Kyle Long via Zoom. Let's join their conversation. When I came back to Indianapolis, I decided that I wanted to sing. And I met this girl in, uh, who was in the school choir, because by that time I was in the school choir. And uh, she was in a, a gospel choir, a church choir. And she kept asking me to come, inviting me to come, and I would always put it off. So finally I came, and that was the best decision I ever made in my life. I joined the choir, the Oliver Youth Choir. Mm. And that's, by the way, that's where I met Henry. And that was at Mount Vernon Baptist Church, right, in Hawville? That's correct, yeah. yeah. And was this, this is just a crazy guess, but was this woman, Johnny Mae Oliver, by any chance, that took you out That's there? correct. Wow, because I, right. I, I know she went to Shortridge, and I knew she was a big part of the choir there. And, you know, I've been trying to do research on her, and sadly, I don't think she ever recorded, but she was a real big force in the local music scene. She was a... Yeah, tell me she about Johnny May. She, she sang with the Moonlighters. She was involved with the church. Tell me about uh, Johnny May Oliver as a vocalist. As a vocalist, she was absolutely outstanding. She was probably, at the time, the for me, she was the best vocalist uh, in Indianapolis at the time. She encouraged so many other people. She encouraged other members in the choir. You know, she, like myself and like uh, Cheryl Chandler, who was a fantastic singer as well, Henry Inch. She was she was so encouraging to all of us. You mentioned she took you to uh, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, and this uh, reignited your passion for singing. What was it about the music you heard there that spoke to you? It wasn't just the music. It was the people that were involved in this choir. Mm. The man who was the leader of this choir was a man called Louis Dinwiddie. And he put his own money into keeping kids off the street. That was actually what the Oliver Youth Choir did. It kept us off the street. We always had some place to go on holidays. We always had some on Sundays. We were together from nine o'clock in the morning until, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night on Sundays. This church is famous today in Indianapolis as the home of the late Reverend Moselle Sanders, who was a significant figure 
in uh, the struggle for civil rights here in Indianapolis and housing equality. He was uh, beyond his work at the church. He really was an important figure in the community. Did you work much with Moselle Sanders while you were there? Did you get to know him at all? Yes, I did, because um, I, he decided, Moselle decided that he wanted to have all the choirs on, on, on like the first Sunday, all the choirs to sing together. And it was called the Mass Choir. And he got Raymond Raspberry, mm. who was the leader of the Raspberry Gospel mm. Singers, to be the administrator of this choir because he played keyboards and 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 I was the director of the choir. So I was getting really good experience for my future, even though I didn't realize it at the time. All this time, I'm just doing all of this because I just love doing it. Obviously, you were very involved in the church, singing at Mount Vernon. Were you doing any secular music at that time? Were you singing with any uh, local groups or doing any solo singing around the city? At that time, Kyle, you were either a gospel singer or you were an R&B singer. You couldn't do both. You know, this was a very meaningful time here, it sounds like, in terms of your work with Mount Vernon Baptist Church. This kind of equipped you with a lot of skills that you would use later in your musical career. Do you see it that way? How how did your time in Absolutely. Indianapolis kind of prepare you for the work you would Absolutely. do in Europe? Yeah, tell me about that. Absolutely. Uh, working with the, the Oliver Youth Choir, it was like going to college. It was like learning well, how to be a leader, how to uh, 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 arrange songs. And, and, and all of that kind of stuff. It was like a school. Mm. And and thank God for Mr. Dinwiddie for allowing us, you know, to, 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 to have that. And George, you mentioned you weren't involved in singing R&B music during your time in Indianapolis, but in the mid-60s, you moved to Italy and you end up joining an R&B group called the Four Kents. What sequence of events caused this uh, change in your life? When I was 21, I got drafted into the Army. Mm. That was during the buildup for the Vietnam War. But I was fortunate. Instead of going to uh, Vietnam, uh, I was stationed in Italy. And because I've been singing all my life, I, I still wanted to sing. But I knew that the guys in the Army, they didn't want to hear gospel. They wanted to hear R&B, Temptations, Four Tops, you know. And so uh, that's what I did. I formed a group. I met uh, guys. It took, took, me about, took me about six months to form this group because I, by that time I knew that to form a group, you have to have a certain uh, kinds of guys, personalities have to mix as well as the singing. And, uh, and we formed a group. And, and me and those guys now are still like brothers. We still see each other once a year. We have reunions. And this has been going on since the 70s. 
had a lot of success. You made a lot of records. You were actually singing soul music in Italian on some of these records. Tell me about that. Was that an unusual thing for you at the time, or was that something you jumped into uh, with the enthusiasm? Well, uh, we actually had no choice, and that was a learning experience as well, because we did, uh, most of the songs that we did were cover versions, and but they were uh, done, uh, you know, written in in, in Italian, mm. and so we had to learn to sing in, in Italian, which was helpful in learning to speak Italian and learning to understand Italian as well. And uh, it, it was all great. But later on, at the at the, toward the end of our career, the record company allowed us to do an album of our own songs, but we didn't do it as the Four Kents. We did it as a group called, uh, called uh, Sage. Oh God, I can't. Sage. Yeah, called Sage. Yeah, I love that record. I wanted <laughs> to ask you about that. That's an incredible album, and that's all your original music on that record. That's right. That that was uh, that was the ch- chance they gave us to finally, you know, sing our own stuff, our own music, and not do any covers. And I'm still to this day, I'm very proud of that album. You know, eventually you get involved with this project, London Beat, and make one of the biggest dance records of all time. I mean, I grew up in the 90s, and uh, your song with London Beat was just like constantly being played when I was a kid. How did you join this group? And yeah, what was it like to uh, create this monumental hit record that's still everywhere today? It's still played all the time. Well, when I was doing backing vocals, we did it. Uh... It was the, the, the guys in, uh, who, who eventually became London Beat, Jimmy uh, Chambers and Jimmy Helms. And, uh, and then in 1980, 1984, Paul Young asked us to uh, join him and go do backing vocals with him on his, and, and tour with him. And we went out on the road with Paul Young from, uh, 19, from December of 1984 until until I think March of 86 we were with Paul Young and we said we sit down and we talked we said oh this is nice ain't it why don't we put something together since we we kind of know how this thing worked now and that's what that's what happened we decided that we was going to put together a group and we with the advance that we got 
from the recording contract, we use that to buy recording equipment. And we put the recording equipment in uh, what used to be my son's bedroom. <laughs> and we made all our records in my son's bedroom. Wow. We did three albums. What are you doing today? Are you still making music? Are you still out there singing uh, in the studio or performing live? Absolutely not. I am okay. not singing. I retired in 1992. Mm. And I have been, as they say, sitting on my behind yeah. since 1992. <laughs> I do exactly what I want to do. And what I like is music. And I like listening to music. And uh, I also I like history, um, and that's what I do. I'm I'm, I'm very I'm very lucky. I, I realize that I had uh, Kyle for a job. The thing that I enjoyed doing the most, and I remember the first time the the first big a uh, paycheck I got royalty statement. I started crying, and the guys asked me, "Why are you crying, man?" I said, I'm crying because I would have done it for nothing. Because I, I, I had for a job the thing that I enjoy doing the most. And it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it sometimes. I'll be 80 years old next, next year. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time to share your extraordinary history in Indianapolis and outside of Indianapolis with us. I think it's incredible that you've taken uh, these things that you learned at Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Hawville and just uh, taken this worldwide and influenced uh, yeah. uh, people in ways that uh, I think you, you would have found hard to believe when you were a kid out in Hawville. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Any final thoughts you want to share with the listeners here in Indianapolis, George? Thank you for being my school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been listening back to our 2023 conversation with vocalist George Chandler. Let's listen to a track George recorded with the four Kents during his time in Italy. Touch that dial. Echoes of Indiana Avenue will return after this short break.
This is Butch Slaughter, and you're listening to the Echoes of Indiana Avenue. On this week's show, we're looking back at some of our favorite Avenue music and interviews from 2023. Up next, we'll hear music from the legendary Neptown jazz trombonist, Phil Renolin. Phil released an exciting new album last year, Through Jazz Is Dead a label and live music series co-founded by producers Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Muhammad is best known as a founding member of the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. Young is an accomplished composer and producer who has worked with artists including Kendrick Lamar, Jay-Z, and the Delphonics. From Jazz Is Dead, volume 16, this is Phil Renolin and Wendell Harrison with Running with the Tribe. That was Phil Renolin and Wendell Harrison with Running With The Tribe. On this week's show, we're looking back at some of our favorite Avenue music and interviews from 2023. Up next, we'll listen to an excerpt of our interview with Claudia Pauly. She achieved greatness in many different fields. As a vocalist, Claudia studied classical music at Juilliard and later became a disco star in France. During the 1980s and 90s, she produced critically acclaimed jazz recordings and documentary films. Claudia is also a trailblazing broadcaster whose credits include work with WNBC and National Public Radio. Today, Claudia is best known as a historian and preservationist. She currently serves as the president of the Urban Legacy Lands Initiative, an organization dedicated to preserving the history of Indiana Avenue and other historic black spaces in Indiana. Let's join Claudia's conversation with WFYI's Kyle Long as she explains how her mother's work as a historian and her grandmother's work in music influenced her development. Mom came out of uh, Purdue in 45 and worked a couple of things and actually worked at Ellis Ayers as their first black employee who was not a service employee. I was a, a little thing at that point, and, but Mom ended up being a school teacher also and uh, did very well at that, And but always had this passion for preservation and for black history and had been a part of what was then called the Indiana Avenue Association, which was formed in the 1960s, mid-1960s, because people were seeing that Indiana Avenue was slowly but surely being erased, being gobbled up, and places that they had grown up with were being torn down and allowed to fall down. Uh, so uh, what do they call it? Uh, intentional neglect. Hmm. Um, uh, and so... 
it uh, that was happening then, and a number of the leaders at that time, uh, a number of the black leaders at that time, gathered together to see how they could help save the avenue. So it's been in the blood for a while. <laughs> you mentioned it was your grandmother that worked in the music department at Crispus Attics, right? right? What sort of music was she interested in? Well, she had been brought up a classical musician like like the rest of us. Um, Grandma played piano. She sang. She had a beautiful contralto voice. Actually, she was, if not the first, then one of the very first uh, blacks to be in the Indianapolis Symphonic Choir. And I remember going to hear her sing as part of the choir in the 50s and was very proud that Grandma was there. And she, too, was a contralto. And at Attic, she taught the girls choral groups and um, I'm not sure that she taught any of the men's, but she was certainly responsible for many of the girls' uh, choral groups and assisted in general music education at Crispus Attics. I never knew not to be around music. It was <laughs> it was difficult since Grandma played the piano and all the string instruments. My mother played violin. My uncle played cello. And what did Uncle Joe play? I don't remember, but he, he played an instrument also. But we were all trained, classically trained, and whatever else came after that, we were all grounded in classical music. Hmm. Would they play together at home, or what role did music have in kind of your family life? Um, it was just always there. Hmm. And um, I guess we never really thought about it because it was always there. Hmm. Um, and also... Witherspoon was like a conservatory. Mm. All the musicians that many uh, people know as the great jazz musicians of the day um, got up after they finished their gig on Saturday night. They went home, changed clothes, and came to Witherspoon for church. And uh, uh, for all of the major religious holidays of the year, we had full orchestras at Witherspoon um, because that's the music that we grew up on. Um, so I never knew not to have a full orchestra of Messiah at Christmas time. That was just the way it was. And I guess I was very I was very blessed, but also very unknowledgeable that other people didn't grow up that way. And um, it, I just never questioned it. Claudia, since we're kind of on the subject, I did want to ask you today about the culture of classical music kind of centered around the Indiana Avenue neighborhood or just generally within Black Society of Indianapolis. There's a really incredible legacy of classical music within this community. I don't know how aware the, the community is at large of this legacy, but it's really um, astonishing some of the personalities that came out of Indianapolis. I wanted to ask you about that. I know you you did some concerts that were organized by the Indianapolis Music Promoters. Right. And this is a, a society of uh, classical music uh, advocates and musicians. And I, I've always been curious and wanted to learn more about this group. Tell us about the Indianapolis Music Promoters. Well, the Music Promoters was, it had been around forever also. Um, and it was, uh, uh, the, the lead that I knew was uh, Laverne Newsom, who was also one of my professors at uh, 
at Attucks, and also Mr. Compton, James Compton, and Mr. Brown. Russell Brown was part of Music Promoters, too, but he was um, um, slightly different, but he was the musical director at Witherspoon. So all of this was intertwined, so it was, it was never that, well, I'm going to go over here and learn this uh, or go over here and do that. It was just all together. It was just part of our world that we knew about from the time we knew anything. Um, and But music promoters uh, did their own concerts and recitals and helped um, kids learn their instruments um, to a very high level. James Compton was one of my violin teachers. He was also Freddie Hubbard's violin teacher. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and everybody goes, Freddie Hubbard violin? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that's the world we grew up in. Um, we were grounded in classical music. Tell us a little bit about your history in classical music. You know, I, I think you went to Attics for a year, and then you transferred to Interlaken, mm-hmm. which is a performing arts or just an arts-focused uh, uh, private school in Michigan. Right. And you eventually went on to arts. Juilliard. So and yeah, went to Juilliard. Yeah, tell right. us about your history in classical music. Well, my history in classical music starts at four um, when I started playing the violin, which um, I had a quarter-size violin that was my mother's, and then I grew into the full-size violin that was my mother's, and both had been uh, given to my mother by my grandmother, who was a pianist, a rather extraordinary pianist, and, and a singer, of course. So um, I just started violin at four and kept going. I didn't really know I was fairly good. I, I did place first in all state and and I was in all city junior high orchestra and all city high school orchestra for the year that I spent in high school in Indianapolis. And um, most of the time sat towards the front of the orchestra. So there was never any people said, well, did you have any problems with, you know, people saying anything? I said, generally not because they sat behind me. And it, it was always about how good a musician you were. And if you were good, people respected the fact that you had some talent and were able to um, able to show it. Mm. The Indianapolis Public Schools music program was quite extraordinary in the 50s and 60s. Um, and I'll never forget the music memory contests. Um, I've heard a lot about this. I was unfamiliar with it until a couple years ago. Yeah, but I've heard a lot about it. Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful where, you know, they would – um, they would drop uh, uh, the uh, arm of, of a record player onto a, a record, and you had to know what that was. And uh, so those of us who did well there got a chance to go to the finals, which were at the Circle Theater uh, with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. And uh, the orchestra would play an excerpt from something, and those of us in the audience had to answer correctly. And But it was all such a great a great thing to do. And uh, but what an, what an amazing education so that we had to know music well enough that we could listen to 30 seconds and know what did that come from. Tell us about your pathway to Juilliard. I know you studied with some very important musicians there. I mean, this school is like the Harvard of 
<laughs> of music schools. Tell us about your pathway there and kind of how that uh, impacted your life. Well, it really started in Indianapolis Public Schools, being able to learn music thoroughly, well, and um, hold your own. Um, and then that's how I got to go to Interlochen, which for me, Interlochen was much more um, challenging in music than even Juilliard. Juilliard was a wonderful opportunity to perform. And if you were really good, you performed at the highest levels of your of the business, of your of your art. And I was well prepared by Interlochen because Interlochen, we did a two-hour concert. Um, I started Interlochen as a violinist and then switched to voice because I realized I'm not Yasha Heifetz and I don't think I'm going to be an orchestra musician. And um, they said, well, you certainly are a wonderful singer. And I went, really? And so they allowed me to switch to voice, and it turned out that I wasn't so bad. So, um, And because I'd played the violin for so many years, I was able to switch over to voice. And when I went to Juilliard, um, which is this is uh, September of 67, I could pretty much sing anything that was put in front of me. So I became a contemporary music specialist because wow. uh, violin teaches you pitch. It teaches you all sorts of things. So I could read anything and hit the notes. And for people like, you know, uh, Glass and and Luciano Berrio and mm. who else did I work with? I really worked with Luciano. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. And just the wonderful um, composer. They said, but you actually are a good musician. I went, well, I've been playing the violin since I was four. That helped. And you, it was Indianapolis Public yeah. Schools. <laughs> You mentioned Barrio, but you worked with Philip Glass, too, during I your did. time at Juilliard? Mm -hmm. uh, just a little bit, because yeah. uh, he was just coming on the scene. Right, right. And, that must uh, have been pretty early on in his career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and working with other um, contemporary composers who were um, at the kitchen mm. in uh, down in Soho in, in New York, because it was just forming, and all of us were a little crazy, and we, um, but we were good at what we did, and we got together and performed. Um, I actually did more in contemporary music after I graduated from Juilliard, but it was all based on friendships from uh, with people who I'd gone to Juilliard with. We've been listening back to our 2023 conversation with the Indianapolis vocalist, broadcaster, and historian, Claudia Pauly. Let's return to our conversation as Claudia discusses her work in radio. I had worked as a... Uh, for WNBC in New York. That mm -hmm. was my part-time job while you I was in Juilliard. You Swahili on the radio, oh, right? Oh, <laughs> Lord, you've done your research. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. That sounds so, so remarkable to me. Well, it was it was 1968. I was, uh, or 69, and I was trying to be hip, and I was taking Swahili mm -hmm. just sort of casually, but the day before, I would I would have a Swahili lesson, and then the next day, I'd be repeating it online at WNBC. And uh, finally, one day after we'd been doing this for a while, I said, "Well, for those of you who'd like to know what we've what you've been hearing and what you would like, if you'd like, I'll do a, a a brief overview of what we've done." Four thousand postcards came in saying, "Please send us uh, what you've been doing," mm -hmm. and so WNBC went. Oh, well, 
Okay. So they all of a sudden one day I saw my uh, sh- not show, but the fact that you can learn Swahili on WNBC. Mm-hmm. Tune in, and I went, ooh, okay. But that was it. Was all by happenstance. If it, if I tried to plan this out, it never would have happened. And because I'd been on WNBC, I was able to move into doing TLC, and then I went to National Black Network for a short time in New York, and then came back to Indianapolis to WNTS, the first radio station of... of um, Jeff Simoleon? Yeah. yeah. So we call him media mogul now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what Letterman calls him. Yeah. <laughs> and you were... On the air with David Letterman, correct? At I was. WNTS. I was. Yeah. And he had a running joke where he would uh, refer to you as Jane Pauly's sister because – Twin the, sister. Yeah. Names are pronounced. That's right. And, the and then he would say, their mother is so proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jane – and when David sees Jane occasionally now, he'll say, how's Claudia? Yeah. <laughs> Did you find that humorous? I did. Yeah. Was he uh, difficult to work with? He seems like he would be kind well, of un- he, unpredictable, difficult. Well, he could be unpredictable, but he was never difficult with me. He was just he was just David. Mm. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is true, but I heard that you and David were on air with the grand dragon or whatever they call them of the Ku Klux Klan. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, it was just me actually. Yeah. Um we had set up uh, the producers had set up a an interview with uh, the grand dragon and because um, well, yes, and he agreed to it. I did it, and I tried to keep my cool until the interview was almost over. And then I said, now, as one of those, and it was something akin to jungle bunnies that you've just been talking about, I'd like to thank you very much for this interview, uh, whatever. And there was dead silence and <laughs> click. <laughs> and then the callers came in. We didn't know you were black. You don't sound black. Wow. <laughs> and uh, but it was pretty amazing. It was wow. it was pretty amazing because I don't know if you knew where WNTS was, but no. NTS was down in Beach Grove, mm. not a particularly black neighborhood, yeah. um, <laughs> especially <laughs> and, back then. Yeah. Especially back then, and the listeners just didn't know I was black. And so to find that out, and neither did the Grand Dragon either, but he did at the end. And uh, But it was it was pretty good. I, was, I felt fairly righteous after that. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and you got a lot of attention for being uh, the sports director at this station, right? I think you appeared on the Tom Snyder show at one point Tom to talk Snyder, about it. Right. Yeah, tell me about your real trailblazer in local media and maybe national media too, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I, I guess because I was one of the very first women to go into locker mm-hmm. rooms. And the reason I, I did here in Indianapolis with the Pacers, and I did because of Tom Binford, because at that point, Tom was being the general manager of the Indiana Pacers right after the Simons brought it. And Binford was just brilliant. He was a brilliant man anyway, and he was a man who's always been um, grounded in equality and fairness. And because he was with the Pacers and that he was also uh, chief steward at the uh, at the 500 at the same time, and so I wanted to go cover the 500. And so I was the first woman to have a silver badge, which is the badge that lets you go anywhere at the track. And this was 1974. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and it was Binford that did it. 
I mean, do you still get recognition for that? It seems like something that you should be in the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame for you this. Know, yeah, because I it, didn't stay in journalism. Okay, yeah. That would have been if I'd stayed in journalism and and only done that. That would have been fine. If I didn't run off to Paris for the next four years, um, I perhaps would have been. But no, it was just it was part of what I did. The final kind of area of your work I wanted to ask you about is preservation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you mentioned, this goes back to your mom and the Indiana Avenue Association of the 1960s. You're now involved with the Urban Legacy Lands Initiative, which is a historic preservation project. And this is work you've been doing here in Indianapolis at least since the 1980s, I think, with the the preservation of Fayette Street during the construction of the canal downtown. Anything you want to say about the work you're doing today with the Urban Lands just, initiative. Yeah. just that it is for us to tell the story. Um, and we are working on the protection, as I say, the, the, the uh, mission statement is to reveal, protect, and preserve the rich heritage of black people and places. And so we tell our story. We protect those places, not just for black people to live in, but uh, to have anyone who respects the history of the place to be there and to be part of the community, that is. We start with historic Indiana Avenue and also historic Fox Lakes Lake, but um, we're looking to work in other neighborhoods on the near west side which are under threat of uh, just not being treated with this respect they are due. Let's just leave it at that. You know, finally, th- this neighborhood, Indiana Avenue, or in, in black neighborhoods in Indianapolis in general, the history in these neighborhoods has either intentionally or unintentionally, so much of it has been destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. The physical presence of these buildings is largely gone on Indiana Avenue. What do you make of that? What is your sort of personal uh, reflection on the destruction of that history? Well, unfortunately, we didn't stand up to to make sure it did that did not happen. So, but we can bemoan what didn't happen 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. But what do we do about it now? And I guess that's kind of been the way I live my life. You know, I'm really sad that certain things did not happen. So what do you do to make the best possible future? And that's what Uli is about, mm-hmm. is making sure that the future shows the respect of the people in place that were there before. Um, and Uh, work towards that. And there are lots of other people that want to do that. They just hadn't had anybody come along and say, hey, let's do it together. And believe me, I'm not doing this by myself. (laughs) I am old and crotchety, so I need good good folks to be beside me. And this is for my kids' generation and actually my grandson's generation. Um, This is their future, and they need to know what came before. And I asked David Williams this question recently, and I think you might have a different answer, and I'm curious what you might have to think about this. Do you think there can be justice for what was done? Do you think there can be justice in the future for these neighborhoods and the black community that have uh, been destroyed? I think there can be justice. I think by telling the story accurately and well and not allowing any more to be destroyed or removed – That's the justice for the past. Um, The injustice is to stand back and not do anything. We've been listening back 
to our 2023 conversation with Claudia Pauly. Let's end with a disco track Claudia recorded during her time in France. From 1979, this is Time. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for listening to this look back at our favorite interviews and music of 2023. You can meet me here on the Avenue again next week. Same time, same place. And you can find the Echoes of Indiana Avenue podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcast. Echoes of Indiana Avenue is written and produced by Kyle Long and hosted and co-produced by me, Herman Butch Slaughter. Nobody knows on uptown Baby like I do Do Nobody knows on uptown Baby, like I do, do. And if you will stop and listen, I will tell you a thing or two.